The weather bulletins cried out the warning, severe storm, hurricane boasting 130 mile an hour winds, 50 miles off the coast. Everyone in its potential path of destruction rushed to the lumber yard to purchase plywood and prayed that the chaos of nature would not overwhelm them. Where is Jesus when nature seems to go berserk? Our Bible teacher Dave Woodson lives in Texas, the hometown of Galveston Hurricanes and Wichita Falls tornadoes. If you can grab a Bible, you might want to open to Matthew chapter 14 verses 13 through 36. If not, I'm sure you will have no problem remembering the account. Christ's power over nature. I think it's a subject that is not often spoken about, but it's a subject that's very much on our hearts. Uh, Perry Brown is a flamboyant seller of furniture. He's one of these guys that comes on TV and does his own ads, and he does some real creative things, and he gets a lot of people coming into his store. But more importantly, Perry is a committed believer. He loves the Lord Jesus with all of his heart. Perry has millions of dollars worth of furniture and rugs and all that kind of thing that's right on the Carolina coast. And the hurricane hit. A couple days later, I heard the devastation and wrecked Perry's entire furniture store. And over a million dollars worth of furniture was destroyed. And like usually is the case, the insurance covered about three quarters of the bill, but the remaining 250000 wasn't there. That's tough. That's tough. At the wedding rehearsal that I was at on Friday night, Mary and I ate with a couple that's moving to Wichita Falls. They're going to be going up there into the Air Force. As soon as you mention Wichita Falls, you think of Wichita Falls and tornadoes. You just think of Wichita Falls and think of tornadoes. And somebody began to share with us how it cut more than a mile sway through that city of destruction. And all of us have heard the stories of the devastation, the deadly quality of those storms. And all of us cringe with fear, some of you more than others, when they give out the tornado warnings. Why does nature suddenly seem to go berserk? As you live your life, and as you seek to worship God, and suddenly nature turns into a violent storm, and it snuffs out your economics. It takes away a lifetime of savings in a moment of time. A vicious tornado snuffs out the life of one of our loved ones. And we are going to be thrown into a great question. Where is God? Where is God in the midst of all this? Why does God allow that to happen? I think there are many people, they've concluded, as I look at nature... If there is a God that's behind all of this, he must be cruel, he must be vindictive, he must be someone that I wouldn't want to have anything to do with. Or else he's so weak, he's so weak that he can't do anything to stop the chaos. What does the Bible have to say about God and its power over nature? Well, we begin in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and as we read Genesis 1, there's a phrase that I want you to remember always as the key phrase of Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the original design. If you want to know what the heart of the Creator is, if you want to know what He delights in, if you want to know what He's like, 
you want to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And this refrain we read over and over again. Look at verse 9. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was what? Good. You look down at verse 25. God made the wild animals according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was? Tell me. God saw that it was what? God saw that it was good. You have man created. And God creates man in his own image. And God says that it was, if you look at verse 31 at the end of the chapter, God saw that all that he had made, and he said it was very, very good. The original design of creation was good. The animals were good. Nature was good. The sea was good. The heavens were good. Everything was good. The first not good that you get to in the text is Genesis chapter 2 where God says it is not good for man to be alone and then God rectifies that because he wants to create an anticipation in man so that he will appreciate the help meet that God gives to him. And so when you get through with Genesis chapter 1 and 2 you can write over the whole refrain it is good, it is good, it is good. And then we hear this psalmist saying the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day they utter their speech. And night unto night we can hear their voice. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have God, the architect, building the universe. And the universe reflects his heart. It reflects the way that he as an architect likes to draw, the way that he likes to paint. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you could look at creation... And you could analyze, as I look at creation, what deductions can I make about the one who built this? What is he like? What kind of a will does he have? What kind of a heart does he have? And in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you could look at the product that God created, and you could argue right back and get a very good handle on the nature of God. Now that's what raises the problem in our own world. You see, as we look at nature, if you've ever lived through a hurricane, when you walk out in the middle of a hurricane and you say, I'm going to make some deductions about God. As you go out, like I did in Florida one time in the Fort Lauderdale area, right after about six tornadoes went through and totally demolished an area, and I went out with an insurance investigator and we saw the results of a tornado, and you would drive the car down one side of the street and every house on that side of the street was demolished except maybe one, because the tornado skipped that house. The other side of the street looked like everything was totally normal. One family would lose little children and loved ones, and the other side of the street, you wouldn't even know. If you blocked out the other side, it looked like everything was fine. What kind of deductions would you make about God when you look at that haphazardness? You look at that chaos. You look at that what looks like pure chance. What kind of deductions would you make about God when you look at that? And that's why a lot of people are not worshiping God today because they've been honest enough to say, as I look at nature, it's meaningless. It's chaotic. It just seems that good people get wiped out, the same as bad people. It seems like nature goes berserk one minute. It's a beautiful moonlit night, full moon, beautiful, calm. The next minute, the Texas plain looks like a war zone. I don't like a God that's like that. 
The tragedy of the person that makes those kind of deductions is that, is that they haven't read what the author has told us about the story of history. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about the devastation of God's original design. We read about Adam's fall. And Adam's fall wasn't just a mythological story. If ever there was a historical account, if ever there was an event which had unbelievable ongoing implications for the human race, it was what happened in the garden that day. And I want you to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. We begin in verse 17, and God is speaking to Adam. To Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. It wasn't just because he listened to his wife. It's because his wife, in this case, told him to do what was wrong, and Adam was the one that was responsible to take the lead in being obedient to God, and he turned over that whole structure, and he disobeyed God. The creature decided he was going to be the creator. And Adam sinned, and he ate the fruit that God told him not to eat. Now, what happened? Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, those are some of the saddest words in all the Bible. If you don't believe they're true, go out into your yard. How many of you have had to dig up burrs, sand burrs, or coca burrs, whatever you call them? Why do we have to do that? Why is it that a little tiny burr can just cover your lawn with thorns? Man alive, you go out digging them up, you walk into your house, you go into your closet, and suddenly, ow, my foot! How many of you ever had that happen? You reach down, and there's this little tiny thing that just hurts like wildfire. Why does that happen? Because Adam sinned. Because Adam sinned. I don't know what God's plans were for birds before the fall. But after the fall, they become part of this whole periodic devastating cycle. And all of us have to go out, and by the sweat of our brow, we have to work. And the ground is reluctant. It doesn't just burst with new life. You've got to put chemicals on it, and the insects attack, and all the different negative aspects of nature that we see. The Bible attributes that it all goes back to the fall. Because, you see, God created Adam to rule over his creation. And when that administrator of God fell into the rebellion and joined the adversary, he dragged his domain, the domain of nature, that God meant for man to be able to subject, that God meant for man to be able to rule over it, God meant for man to be able to enjoy it. When Adam fell, the Bible teaches us there was a unity between Adam and the world that he lived in. In fact, the entire universe. And it became part of this horrible rebellion. The result is sweat and thorns and tragically death. Often at a funeral, it's, it's one of the most melancholy parts of a ceremony. I usually don't do it because it's so melancholy. But often, pastors will take some dirt. And at the end of the committal service, they will put the dirt and they'll say, from dust we are, to dust we return. Now, I don't like to say that because as a believer, 
We've got a lot more hope than that. But this terrible, chaotic principle that's entered into nature is what produces the sweat, it's what produces the pain, it's what produces the storms, it's what produces the heartache of a nature that at times goes totally berserk. I want you to see something. It's very important for you to understand that God is not nature. It sounds like a crazy idea, but many people in our culture are returning to the idea that God is nature. In fact, the person that looks at nature and sees the devastation there and watches like a a vicious tiger that tears apart a little tiny fawn, someone that thinks God is nature starts to make some bad conclusions about what God is like. One of the things I want you to begin to think clearly about today is that the Bible teaches that God is not nature. In fact, the Bible is telling us right now that nature after the fall is not even a very good picture. It's not even an accurate masterpiece of the Creator's design. It's like somebody took this masterpiece and went into the museum and they took a knife and they slashed it and they threw ink at it and they marred this beautiful masterpiece. Now, around the edges... And at time the different parts of the painting, you can still see the handiwork. You can see that unbelievable design of this ultimate artist. But it's so distorted in our own lives and in the natural world that we live in that you make very bad deductions about the character of the Creator when you look at nature after the fall. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. The Apostle Paul talks in the New Testament about what we learned in Genesis chapter 3, 17 through 19. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Paul says there, as I live in this world after the fall, as I live in a world where nature can go berserk, that I consider the present sufferings, the present sufferings would include some of the negative effects that come into our lives because of the harm that's come into nature because of our fall. Because I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation, that's what we're talking about, the creation, nature. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now Paul does a very powerful thing here. He personifies nature. He gives us the characteristics almost of a person. And he pictures this fallen universe that we live in as being like a pregnant woman who can hardly wait to give birth to this new life. He says in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to frustration. That's what we just looked at in Genesis 3. The creation was subjected to frustration. And the word frustration would mean futility, emptiness. We talked a little bit last week about some of the philosophers that come to the deduction that life is meaningless. And what we tried to share with you last week is that if you eliminate the story of the Bible, if you eliminate the realities of what we learn when we open up God's precious word, then the existential theologian or philosopher, the Frenchman like Camus or Sartre, they are right. One of the dominant views of intellectuals of our day is life fundamentally, if you look at it hard enough, is meaningless. It echoes the words of Ecclesiastes. Nature is meaningless. 
And I want every one of you as believers to understand that from the youngest child to the oldest adult, if you live this life just for the natural world, you see, that's what's wrong with evolution as a philosophy. Because evolution will say that material things, matter and energy, that's the thing that's internal, eternal. That's the thing that lasts. That's the thing that we need to put our confidence in. And the thing that I want you to understand is that you can't put your confidence in that because if you do, you're going to come up at some strategic point in your life and you're going to say it's all futile. Man, I lived for this. I lived for that. I poured myself into that. It doesn't mean a blessed thing. You get to be 40 years old and you say, wasn't worth it. And that's where a lot of you will be. And that's what the text is telling us. Nature that we live in. If you look at it just from this perspective, it's going to come up empty. And I don't want any of our kids to live for something that's going to run out of gas. It's going to turn out to be just empty and meaningless. Paul is saying that we live in a natural kingdom. The whole world, as we look at it, is subject to emptiness. It's futile. It's meaningless. If you look at it just from its own perspective, without the perspective of what God's going to do, It'll come up empty. It'll be frustrating to you. And I think a lot of the problems that a lot of modern people have is that they don't have any answer when life runs out of gas, when nature attacks, when disease attacks, when you live just for the now and then the now vaporizes and there's nothing left. It becomes frustrating and depressing and you start drinking or you take pills. And that's the answer that many, many people across our society are taking. Isn't it great to the Word of God tell us that nature was subject to frustration? If you're frustrated, if at times you feel like, man, this is chaotic, it's disorderly, I never know what's going to happen, the Bible tells you that's the kind of a world that we live in now. It's saying that nature was subjected to futility. Not by its own choice. It wasn't nature's fault. That's, a, that's an interesting thing. Nature didn't choose to get in this mess. It says it was not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, those are difficult verses. And it's hard to know whether God is saying that Adam was the one that subjected nature to this chaos or whether there's a feel that ultimately behind it all that there's a creator who allowed creation to be subjected because he knew how it would all end up, that one day out of this terrible chaos and of all the inconsistency of the natural world, one day there would be a great redemption. There would be a great salvation. And in that great shout of restoration, the frustration and the emptiness would be drowned out forever. I think there's both of those ideas. I think there's the responsibility of Adam in that God allowed Adam to sin, but the Bible teaches us that God did not cause Adam to sin because God can't tempt any man. And man does have a will, which is a great mystery. But another great comforting reality is though man has a will, there's ultimately the sovereign king who's working everything together towards the goals that he has in mind. Paul goes on and talks more about the travail, this futility of nature as we look at it today. Look at verse 22. 
We know that the whole creation, all the universe, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only nature, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as well as we eagerly await for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. And there the Apostle Paul talks about nature groaning and we're groaning. Now that's a pretty bad scene. That's man's fall, nature's curse, and that's where we're all living right now. Now what has God done about this? Well, I'm sure you could guess it, but let me spell it out for you. We started out this morning with an original design, and you tell me. The Creator wrote over Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it is all very Tell me again. It was all very good. What's the heart of your Creator? What kind of a world are you going to live in forever and ever and ever? Over all of eternity, God will write, it is very good. So when things are bad, it's not the heartbeat of your Creator. It's what? It's sin. It's the devil. It's the adversary. It's our rebellion against Him. Don't ever blame God. That's one of the major things I want you to learn. Many people blame God for what's my fault and what's your fault. We get angry with God for the fall of nature. It's not God's fault. It's a very important biblical idea. God is good. God is the great creator of order. God's the great creator of beauty. When you see ugliness, disorder, and chaos, it's not the heart of God. Praise God, the Lord says that he won't let chaos and disorder and hurt ultimately get outside the bounds that he has for it. You say, well, Dave, how do you know? How do you know that God's going to do something about it? Because he already has. You say, Dave, you're telling us it's going to end up all right. How do you know that? Now, this is where our faith comes in. And I want to just share with the heartbeat of my faith. I believe that the Creator did not just stay up in Never Never Land somewhere outside the space-time continuum and say they blew it, the universe is spinning through space haphazardly, the whole thing is futile, forget about it. I'm going to go play with some other toys. That's what Benjamin Franklin believed. Thomas Jefferson believed it. That was called the deist view, that God spun the universe and then he left. Praise God the Bible didn't teach that. Man alive, if that's what's happening, we've got bad troubles. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the great creator, the great creator knowing his original design and knowing the terrible chaos and meaninglessness and emptiness that life is generated now after the fall, it says the creator cared. In fact, right in Genesis 3, the creator said, I will send a male child who will be the deliverer. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14 because we're going to talk about Jesus' power over nature. If you were going to a liberal church right now, this would be a good time to evaluate what your pastor thinks. Because what I'm going to tell you about the next few minutes, from a humanistic standpoint, I've got a lot of trouble with. What I'm going to share with you, I believe with all of my heart, and I want every one of you to start to be very sensitive to the people you listen to. And you need to learn to ask some questions about this. Now we're going to read something here in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. It says, when Jesus heard, verse 13 of Matthew 14, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. Remember this story? Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Five thousand of them. 
thousands and thousands of people. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Remind us of last week, that compassionate heart of the Lord Jesus. Now as evening approached, Jesus was long-winded and he spoke all day and he healed people all day. The disciples came to him. This is a remote place. You can just hear him. This is a remote place, Lord. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now that's a good, good, concerned, we need to be practical. You know, we need to let these people go. We need to get some food for them. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. I love that. Now I really, I want to ask Peter someday, Peter, how did you feel when you looked at, at maybe 5,000 people, 5,000 men, so you got more than that, 5,000 people, and the Lord says in this desert place at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, feed them, feed them. You say, Dave, what's so important about this? What did I tell you in Genesis chapter 3? Man is going to have a hard time doing what according to Genesis chapter 3? Tell me. He's going to have a hard time getting food. In our modern American culture, we forget quickly how hard it is to produce food. But it still is hard. It's only because of some tremendous blessings that have come upon our land that food is such a low on the totem pole as far as our real needs and concerns and worries. But it's hard to produce food. Now what Jesus faced Peter and the apostles with was a heartbeat of the problem of fallen man. You've got 5,000 people, feed them. Across this world, contrary to what America is like, across this world, this is one of the number one manifestations of the fall. Joshua, just this week, and, and listening to some tapes, got a real burden to try to help some kids in other parts of the world who have fat tummies. And we've all seen that. And the Lord's generated organizations like Bread for the World and and World Vision, and lots of other relief organizations that are seeking to meet the needs in Ethiopia and meet the needs in other sections of Asia. Terrible, terrible needs. This is a very strategic problem. There's a crowd out there. Feed them. And Jesus turned to the disciples and says, you feed them. But they don't have any resources to feed them. You see, what Jesus was reminding us of is one of the major manifestations of the fall is that nature doesn't come through for us the way it should. Every farmer knows what that's like. A farmer works, they plow, they plant, they put fertilizer out, they get a beautiful crop of corn. I remember being up in Nebraska, and we looked at, we arrived in Nebraska, we looked at the fields going in, and corn was seven, eight feet high. Beautiful ears of corn. And we were thinking, man, that farmer's going to make a killing. About thirsty that week, the storm clouds rolled in, hail about the size of a baseball hit those fields. When we drove out, there was nothing left. Bare fields. Nothing. Just totally stripped. The farmer goes to try it again. Why? Because it's hard to feed people because of the fall. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, you do something. There's 5,000 people out there that are hungry, hungry. There's no place to buy bread around here. Feed them. They throw their hands up in exasperation. In verse 17, I love what they say. We have only five loaves 
of bread and two fish, fish, they answer. They say, well, this is what's available. We've got five loaves and two fish. And John's gospel tells us how Brother Andrew was the one that got the little boy to give him that stuff and tells us a lot of the human interest stories about that. Bring them to me, Jesus said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. He's just like a Jewish daddy. I just love this. This is what a Jewish daddy does when you eat in their home on Saturday night. They'll take out a piece of bread, just like Jesus is doing here. And before they break it, they'll look to heaven. They'll say, oh, Lord God, we bless thee. You are the giver of the grain and the creator of the bread. And then they break the bread and you pass it around. And Jesus is following that Jewish custom. He looks in heaven and he thanks his father and he breaks the bread. And it says here, then he gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They were all ate and they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets that were left over. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Thousands and thousands of people were fed. Brother and sister, do you believe that? I want you to learn something. As you grow older and you evaluate, you're going to move to different parts of the, of the country. And you're going to visit churches. I want to tell you something that's real important. You want to find out whether you want to go there and whether it's the heartbeat of truth. Just ask them. Just go to a pastor teacher and say, tell me, what do you think happened when Jesus broke the five loaves and the two fish? And if the guy tells you, well... It's a great, great illustration of the power of Jesus and the concern of Jesus to care for people. And you go, if I was there among the crowd and Jesus broke those loaves, would I have had a stomach full or not? And you'll get down to the guts of whether someone really believes what the story of the Bible is all about, or whether they do not. And the truth of the matter is there's a lot of guys that will tell you this story sitting right where I'm sitting, where they, honest to goodness, if you pin them down, they don't believe that Jesus ever broke those loaves. And I don't care what denomination is, because you can be in a lot of different denominations. You can't go with it anymore, but you've got to learn, was my stomach full? You say, Dave, why is it so important? I'm going to tell you why. Because I want to share with you, Jesus did not just break these loaves because he wanted to meet the needs of one group of a great multitude. Jesus fed the 5,000 so that you and I could be sure that one day he'll feed us forever and ever. You know what Jesus was telling his disciples in the crowd? He was saying, I am the male child of Eve who will remove the curse on the ground. Because I can make bread and feed you forever and ever. You know why? Because I'm the creator. You say, Dave, do you really believe Jesus could multiply loaves like that? No sweat. I have no problem at all when I understand who Jesus claims to be in the Holy Scriptures. Because it's small stuff for a creator that one day said, let there be the Milky Way, and just like that there's the Milky Way, it's just a little tiny thing when he visits his planet to say, I'm going to give you a little glimpse of who I am, and I'm going to break some bread and make it multiply and explode. Now that might sound like a little thing to you today, 
But if you believe that, from the gray hairs in this audience to the smallest child, you're going to make it through life. And you're going to make it through life strong. And you're going to make it through life with tremendous drive because the Creator has visited this planet and He's conquered the curse. And He can break bread and feed us. And nature is not going to be able to be reluctant forever. Nature is not going to be able to be under this curse forever because Jesus is the great breaker of the curse. That's why right after these accounts, Matthew gets us into a discussion. Who is this? Who is this? And that's the key question. The Bible answers, who is this? He's the Creator. He's the Lord. That's why He can meet my needs. Liberal theology answers, He's a great rabbi. He's a great teacher. He's like a Greek philosopher. The church made up the stories about Him multiplying the loaves. And I want to share with you from the depths of my heart, if Jesus did not break the loaves and feed those people, then let's all get up and leave. Because we are absolutely wasting our time. Absolutely. I think there's nothing more inconsistent than for me to get up and tell you, it's a great story, it might lift you up a little bit, it's really powerful. To me, that would be the most biggest con job I could ever do. And to get you to give money week after week to support a charlatan like that. But if there was a man who by the northern end of Galilee could take bread and just thank his heavenly daddy and feed thousands of people. If there was a man that could say, one day I'm going to invite you to sit with me in the great banquet supper of the Lamb, if that actually happened, then boy, can we sing today. Man, do we have something to live for. Because we've got a Savior who's the creator who conquers the thorns and the thistles and the toil of producing bread. But it didn't stop there. Israelites hated the sea. Now, I like the sea. In fact, I'm going to have to talk to the Lord because he says in the new heaven, new earth, there'll be no more sea. And I like the sea. I really like the beach, but I'm sure the Lord will have something better for me. I'm willing to trust him for that. That shows you that I'm very Gentile because the Israelites, especially in the Old Testament, they hated the sea. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Let's look back at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, verse 23. Then he got into the boat. That's the Lord Jesus got into his boat with his disciples, and his disciples followed him. Verse 24. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, and they said, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. No abracadabra. Very simple narrative. He got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. That's a good question. What kind of a man is this? Have you ever been in the ocean during a storm? One of the most devastating, chaotic effects of nature is when, the, when there's a storm at sea. The Sea of Galilee, you've all heard from the time you've been kids, Sunday school stories about the storms in the Sea of Galilee, and you've had it explained to you that the Sea of Galilee is like a great big cereal bowl with an opened end on the northwestern side. There's mountains all around, the Golden Heights over here, 
the Judean mountains to the south and the Galilean mountains on the west. And there's a big open area. And the winds blow right across the Mediterranean. And they come in that little break and they churn this sea. And this little tiny lake can suddenly become a deadly, deadly place. And that's what happened. And that's why the disciples were so afraid. And we're faced with this. Here's nature going berserk. Here's the creator sleeping in the boat. And nature pulls one of its chaotic, disorderly, just terribly devastating realities. These seasoned fishermen scream and shake Jesus and say, man, we're going to drown. We're all going to drown. We all could be in that kind of situation. That's the kind of a world we live in. You take a normal day across the Sea of Galilee. Do you know how many times the disciples went across the Sea of Galilee? Do you know how many times we send our kids out into the world? Come on, moms and dads, some of the biggest fears that we have, you send them out and we never know, do we? That's the world we live in. That depresses a lot of us. You don't ever know. You send people out in nature and weird things happen. Accidents, tragedies. The disciples had Jesus sleep in the boat with them and they're still in a storm. And Jesus wakes up and he looks up, says to the sea, be still. That's another question, young people, to ask your pastor. I promise you a liberal will have all kind of gymnastics to get around that one. But I think the account, either I've got a savior that stands up in a ship in the midst of 14, 12, whatever it is, eight foot waves and says, that's enough. Be still. And it becomes as smooth as silk. Or then I don't believe in Christianity. Because this is not some isolated story. This is woven into the fabric of the New Testament. This is what the New Testament is about. And I have friends that are liberal scholars that don't believe. They would not believe what I was saying today about the reality that they would not join with me and say, yes, I believe the Savior did that. I believe Jesus of Nazareth had that kind of power. But they would be honest enough to say that is what the text says. And you are being consistent because that's one of the major points that the Gospels want to make, that Jesus had that kind of power over nature. So what has the Creator done about the chaos? He sent His Deliverer into this world. And what were His credentials? His credentials were He could feed the people. He could take away the curse, the chaos of the sea. Now what does that mean for us? Because Jesus died and rose again. As we live right now, remember Romans 8? It says right now we're living in the travail that nature's still groaning. You say, Dave, how do I know we're going to get through the storm all right? Jesus isn't standing up in the back of my boat and saying, be still. From time to time, the invisible presence of the Spirit will do that. That's what we learn about disease. There will be moments. It's by grace, not by effort. It's by God's free choice, not because we conjured it up. But as you live your life, there will be times when the invisible presence of the Spirit will say, be still. There will be other times when we face the full assault of the storm. But what the New Testament promises us is that one day, one day, one day we will sit at a table and we will eat 
without toil forever and ever and ever. One day, nature will no longer be under the curse. One day, it will be restored. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. It said in Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will see them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever and ever. For the former things were passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's Jesus' power over nature. What do I want you to remember today? We're going to go out into a natural kingdom where tigers tear things apart, where disease suddenly strikes us, where a bad storm can wipe away our lives as well as our livelihood. What have you learned today? It's not the Lord God. It's not the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. But we've also learned that though nature is not God, that God is working out a redemptive salvation plan in history. And we've learned that as believers in him, that this planet has already been visited by the Savior who can remove the curse, by the Savior who can calm the sea. Those that believe it, those that believe it, have a tremendous hope that one day, we're going to return to the garden. The Bible begins in a garden, and Revelation 22 ends in a garden. Those who hold that hope firm until the end are safe. This is a subject, as I, as I thought about studying this week, and I even tried to look up some other theologians that were talking about it, different ones that really study the Bible are talking about it, but it was hard to find it all in one place. I think if many of you are honest, when have you heard a message on the reality of the curse in nature and how it influences our life and what the Savior has done about it? The more that I prayed about it, the more I've realized that there's a lot of precious, precious people that are coming to very seriously wrong conclusions because they're saying if God is like that, if God causes that to happen, that I don't want to have anything to do with him. I'm just going to live my life by myself. And they've come to a terribly wrong conclusion because they haven't learned from the Holy Scripture what we've learned here. I trust with all my heart that you've met the Savior who can multiply the loaves, who could calm the sea, because he went on to die on the cross for us and to rise again from the dead. And that resurrection is his authentication the fact that Jesus rose again in history proves that he is the creator's solution to the terrible chaos that we see in nature.